superior design and planning firm specializing in healthcare, residential, and waterfront projects. Located in Friendship, Maine, and Rhinebeck, New York. OptimusArchitecture.com. On December 31st, from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., WERU will present Solidarity Saturday, moving forward together. Now, more than ever, WERU is a common thread for so many people, and we need the radio station to stay vibrant and going strong. So let's get together for a day of community radio, music, and fundraising. Solidarity Saturday will feature the wildest variety of music anywhere on the radio. From African rhythms to zydeco energy, with even more volunteer DJs than usual packing the studio, we will end the year and usher in the new on a high note, WERU style. That's Solidarity Saturday, moving forward together from 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. Tune in, donate, and if you are in the area of East Orland on Route 1 between Bucksport and Ellsworth, stop by for a visit. And don't forget that you can give to WERU anytime online at WERU.org. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. It's about 25 seconds after the hour, 4 o'clock, main currents time, a real quick weather advisory for you. Accumulations of snow accumulating to from uh, 2 to 7 inches starting tomorrow at 2, so plan yourself accordingly. Tomorrow, Thursday, 2 p.m. starts the weather advisory and that will continue through the night, through Thursday night into Friday. Heavy snows possible at times, 2 to 7 inches, less, in, less by the shore, more inland. Stay tuned now for Main Currents. You're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming on the web at weru.org. And this is Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, December 28, 2016. I'm Amy Brown. Today we're going to be talking about what you need to know about the new recreational marijuana law here in Maine. Two of the organizers behind the successful legalization efforts, Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier, are with us today to answer your questions. And we'll open the phone lines in a few minutes right after they have a chance to introduce themselves. I've asked them to each say a little bit about how and why they were involved in this effort. So, uh, Lynn, why don't you go first? Thank you, Amy. Um, I am an attorney, and I got involved in cannabis reform um, because of criminal justice issues. I've done a lot of civil rights work, um, a lot of work with disadvantaged communities and communities of color, and I saw how they were being impacted by the, uh, quote, war on drugs. Um, I teamed up with the other folks who were... um, looking to do a legalization initiative and I um, wanted to and hopefully did contribute my um, legal expertise to the drafting of the uh, of measure one. Thanks and Paul welcome back you were here uh, not too long ago talking about this issue welcome back to Maine Currents. Thank you very much so I got involved with question one um, and with writing um, along with Lynn and others um, the legalization initiative 
because there was no alternative to the national to the national group MPP's language. There was no local organizing. <clears throat> there was no group that was actually putting together language and doing the fundraising. So that's how Legalized Maine came to be formed, is that we were the ones who decided to take the bull by the horns and provide a local alternative for what marijuana legalization can look like. And we're lucky enough to um, have seen the majority of Maine citizens approve that, and it will soon be the law of the land. All right. Well, I have lots of questions. I'm sure our listeners do, too, and we'll see which direction the listeners take us in, the callers take us in. The phone number here in the studio locally is 469-0500. Again, 469-0500. Or you can call toll-free at 1-866-625-9378. Again, 1-866-625-9378. We'll start taking phone calls at any time if you have questions or comments. Uh, The final count was just announced a week ago. That was December 21st, and LePage has 10 days from now or up until the 31st to sign off on the the final count of this um, question one. The law takes effect 30 days after he does that. He has been quoted as saying that he thinks maybe by signing off on this, he's breaking federal law, and that's an impeachable offense, and who knows what LePage will do. But if he doesn't sign this, what happens? If he doesn't sign it, the um, main secretary of state, uh, Matthew Dunlap, um, it will be his uh, constitutional duty to sign it, and um, he's indicated that he will. Um, we're hoping that the governor um, follows the main constitution, this is a state's rights issue, and, and upholds his constitutional duty to sign the referendum, to certify the election. Um, that is very clear, even after this recount, that um, yes, side prevailed. Is it possible, Lynn, that he could sign it and Mainers could get legalized pot and the governor could be impeached? Um, well, I'm not going to give my personal opinion about the wisdom of that. Um, most likely not. I don't think it's an impeachable offense. And, um, and so I wouldn't hold out hope. All right. So I I think, I mean, I think it's important to point out too, if we're talking about, um, the governor worried about breaking federal law is he's, he has signed, um, multiple bills amending the main medical marijuana program, which is also illegal under federal law. And he has also um, administered the main medical marijuana program. So I don't think it holds much water for him to say that he's concerned that um, he will be impeached for um, approving a measure by Maine voters. All right. There are some bugs that the legislature has said that they want to work out of this, and, and we can go down through some of those as we talk. But in those 30 days, well, the 30 days that will start I guess 40 days now total. He has another 10 days to sign it or not or sign off on it, and then 30 days after that. So by the end of January, will people be able to uh, possess, what is two and a half ounces in their homes and smoke privately while all the retail stuff gets worked out, or what, what happens at that point? Well, the, um, the personal grow and possession part of the initiative will go into effect at that point. So individuals will be allowed to um, essentially grow what uh, currently a licensed patient can grow. Um, six flowering plants and some non-flowering and some, a bunch of seedlings and can possess off their property two and a half ounces of cannabis. On their property, they'll be able to possess whatever they grow from the plants that they have on their property. And and the two and a half ounces of processed per adult? or The two and a half ounces of processed they can have with them when they're not at home. When they're at home, they can possess even more than that, anything that they've, um, that they've uh, gotten from the plants that they're growing. 
So you know, if you're going to go to a large um, a large holiday gathering or um, like a large New Year's party or birthday party, you'd be able to bring that two and a half ounces with you to that party, and you wouldn't be in, um, facing any civil or criminal action or um, penalty for having those. So basically, like alcohol, if you bring it to a party, you, is you know you can't in most places, except in, like New Orleans or something like that. In most places, they don't allow you to consume in public places. But if you're at somebody else's party at, at a private residence, you'd be able to have it with you. Right, or or on private property if someone was holding an event on private property. And sharing with others as well, obviously, would be legal if they were adults. Yes. Yes. Okay. So if money changes hands, though, different restrictions come into play? Yes. That, that, that becomes a commercial transaction, which would still be illegal under Maine state law. Okay. So those are some of the things that, that will be worked out by the legislature. Uh, so moving down through some of the issues that have been raised by LePage and others uh, who are raising these concerns about how it's going to be implemented. One of the things uh, LePage is saying will be too expensive is having the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry regulate marijuana. He says it would, uh, he would have, people, the state would have to cough up at least $5 million to do that. Is that, do you see that as being true? And is that an initial cost that would be reimbursed by the tax revenues created by the commercial sales or? I, I, you know, I, I don't know where the governor gets that number. Um, you know, I think the governor has been known to exaggerate things at times and to get numbers confused. Um, he might be referring to the fact that the Office of Fiscal and Program Review estimated it would cost uh, $3.887 million to, um, to have the adult use marijuana program to be fully regulated. And so that includes the um, 18 full-time positions um, for the staff and um, all of the associated, like, you know, um, equipment, et cetera. Um, but the five million dollars, I don't think that there's any way. I, I don't think any program in Maine history has cost five million dollars to to implement or to write. Um, the medical marijuana program in 2010 only took uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars to develop that whole program, and I don't even think they spent all that money. And what about the revenue end of things? Well, the revenue end of things will um, typically when there's a new program and there's there's revenue projected. Um, you know, as Paul noted, with the medical program, there's a f rather small startup cost, and um, the projections are of revenue as opposed to um, somehow be applied to cost. And it almost looks as if he's taking our projected revenue numbers or, or the, the state's projected revenue numbers and assuming these are going to be the costs of the program. So and you think that's about the about $5 million a year is what it will raise for the state? Or do you have any idea of any uh, calculations? Obviously, they would just be projections. No one knows for sure. But any idea based on what other states have, have made for taxable income? I mean, it's, it's estimating that it'll bring in, um, you know, our estimates are bringing in, it'll probably bring around $20 million a year in sales tax at the 10% sales tax because we're estimating around $200 million annually being spent in the state of Maine on cannabis. That's through um, domestic purchase and from tourist purchases. So that would more than pay for that $5 million if indeed it was $5 million. Uh, it's been widely reported that a error in drafting the legislation has opened up the door for recreational use for people under 21 and concerns have been raised that in in fixing that the legislature may make a law that will 
make it so the medical marijuana program will no longer be able to prescribe to people under 21. Can you comment on both the, whether or not that's a actual uh, loophole that needs to be fixed, as the State Attorney General and Governor LePage have said, and also on a way that it, if it does exist, it, it could be fixed and not impair kids' abilities. You know, that we've had medical marijuana shows here on some of our health programs with young people who have seizure disorders who are really benefiting from medical marijuana. How can we make sure that that, that doesn't end up being affected by this fix. So, I mean, you know, one of the things, um, that's one of the myths about question one is that it, it would affect the medical marijuana program and it would affect um, minors' access to medical marijuana. That's just a blatant lie that was being told by people who didn't want to see marijuana legal for all adults in Maine. This wouldn't affect the medical mar pro marijuana program at all. It's very clear under the construction section of the act. So minors will still be able to, be, to, to get medical marijuana if it's recommended to them from their physician. Um, no matter what happens with question one. Now, when we're talking about the idea of um, people under 21 um, being able to possess marijuana, now that, <clears throat> the way it's written is that only people from 18 to 20 wouldn't face a penalty for possessing marijuana. Right now they face a mandatory minimum $350 fee before state, um, before court costs, if they're caught possessing, you know, anywhere from a, a roach um, up to um, an ounce and a quarter. And so that section was repealed, and that was just a simple drafting error on our part when we were um, you know, going over the measure. It's a 30-page measure. We thought it was very important to make this measure as detailed as possible so that the people um, would know exactly what they're voting on, as opposed to voting on some sort of vague law, which would allow the legislature to do a lot of tinkering with um, right out the gate. So the way it's written now, it uh, just says that people between 18 and 21 wouldn't have a penalty, not that it would be legal, just that they're there's nothing written into the law to punish them if they're caught. It would. It would. In essence, it, what it would do is it would repeal um, um, Chapter 22, um, subsection 2328, sub, sub subsection one, which is the the civil penalty for the possession of marijuana. And um, from my recollection, that was put in there by the revisor's office because you couldn't have a penalty for someone 21 and older when at the same time you had to allow them to grow their own and have possession. It's kind of confusing, but uh, yeah. where does 18 to 21 is kind of arbitrary anyway. I mean, the laws about sales of alcohol have changed over the years, but at 18, for most other practical purposes, people are considered adults. So is this uh, cutoff of age 21 something that they're doing in other states where they've legalized it based on alcohol sales? Or where, or is that based on some kind of science about how it affects developing brains or brains still developing at 19, 20 years old? And what's the reasoning for that? I have no way of really knowing um, what's behind it, but my my feeling is it's most likely alcohol sales. The fact of the matter is the majority of the um, measures that were passed in the Western states were basically regulate like alcohol. And, um, and so it's likely to assume that the 21-year-old um, cutoff was because of that. So that's what that is what they're doing other places. And I and I think it's a political reality that you know, many people who may be dubious of marijuana um, feel a lot more comfortable supporting a measure that taxes and regulates marijuana when the um, age of consumption and possession is twenty one as opposed to eighteen. Mm. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Main Currents on WERU. My guests in the studio today are Paul McCarrier and Lynn Williams. They're two of the people who are behind the passage of Question 1 and that legalized recreational marijuana here in Maine. There are still some bugs that are being worked out, but in about 40 days, at least parts of it should go into effect. If you have any questions or comments about that, give us a call. The number here is 469-0500, locally, or one 866 Six two five nine three seven eight, and jump in with comments uh, of your own as well, and maybe advice for people. I, one of the things that I'm hoping we'll get into after we get through some of these more technical questions about the legislation is uh, advice for people who may be thinking about trying it for the first time or haven't for a long time. I don't really have a sense of how many people are holding off on, you know, smoking pot because it was illegal, if that really was a deterrent for anybody who really wanted to. But there probably are some people who maybe haven't used it for a while for that reason. So uh, we'll save some of that for a little bit later on when we get through some of these other issues, Uh, one of which is the controversy surrounding edibles. Um, A lot of concerns have been raised about edibles getting in the hands of children, There are a lot of chewable supplements on the market that look like candy but can be really dangerous if eaten, especially the ones that contain iron in the vitamins. And there have been reports in recent years about kids eating those colorful laundry detergent pods to the point where Consumer Reports has just said, stop selling them. They're too dangerous. Kids have died from eating those. Yet it doesn't seem like either of those items are going to be taken off the market. And uh, there's a study that's been reported on various... uh, headlines with various headlines in different um, publications, but they're basically citing the same study that says, quote, a sharp increase in marijuana exposure among Colorado children. But what tends to get buried about that story is that the lead author of the study actually said that what may be influencing the increased number of reports of kids that have consumed uh, marijuana is legalization. With legalization, parents are more likely to report what actually happened. She says, quote, in 2009, we didn't know what was wrong with those kids, and we did all kinds of workups. Now, after legalization, more people are saying, oops, I left my brownie out and my child ate it. That's not great, but it's helping us manage those patients, end quote. So edibles, are there benefits that outweigh the risks? And even if they're banned for retail sales, aren't people who want to just going to make their own? I mean, people have been making pot brownies since the beginning of brownies, probably. So what are your thoughts about the the concerns being raised about edibles and, and a lot of push to just make them completely illegal for retail sales? Well, there are a few things. One is I need to point out that the number of people smoking cannabis is decreasing. And um, many people, particularly probably of my generation, who have not been smokers over the years of anything, are not going to start smoking. Uh, Rather, they're more interested in um, consuming edibles or vaping, vaporizing, or um, even using body products that can contain cannabis. Um, I, I need to note that our, um, our requirements for labeling of products are going to be um, extremely strict. Um, I can say, uh, for example, what Colorado has done is uh, and which I think we will end up doing here in this state, um, is require childproof um, closures on these products. Um, if it's more than one dose, requiring reclosures that continue to be childproof. 
um, have universal symbols on the packaging that indicate, uh, you know, it's not going to be a skull and crossbones, but it's going to be something recognizable and possibly even um, prohibit colorful um, designs, colorful looks, candy-like looks of these products so that they can um, remain an, out of, unattractive to children, basically. And part of it, too, is that the, we're very clear in the law that you're allowed, that the state regulatory agency is allowed to put a limit on the um, THC per serving of these marijuana edibles. So that will enable, like we were talking about earlier, if someone wants to try cannabis for the first time in 20 years or you know maybe even 30 years if their kids out of the house by then they um they will be able to know that there's you know ex the exact amount of the serving and um from what i'm hearing um from augusta is that they're looking to put um around like a 15 milligram limit on adult use not medical you know just to make it clear there's only adult use marijuana edibles so that's per serving so someone who buys um a cookie will be able to eat the whole cookie and only get 15 milligrams of um, cannabis per serving. Same thing with a chocolate bar. It's not. We're not going to see like eat, you know a chocolate bar that's going to have 200 milligrams divided over 10 um, squares within the chocolate bar. It would be probably a maximum. And again, the number I'm hearing around is a uh, 15. Has anyone experimented with like making the edibles look like broccoli or anything? I mean, seriously, I, I, was saying, I mean, <laughs> part of the problem is, and, and one of the studies that gets cited in a lot of these is uh, something that I didn't print out, but that. Uh, looked at the shapes and the colors that, that and the smells that draw kids, you know, fruit smells and sugary tastes and things like that. And so things that look like gumdrops or chocolate bars or whatever obviously are going to be more attractive to kids than can't edibles be made in a way that um, still tastes good for people who are using them that way, and including medical patients and not all medical conditions that are thought to possibly benefit from uh, use of medical marijuana have been approved for that purpose. So you may have some people who are now using it medically and need to consume it through edibles. Uh, any other states? I mean, I know I've been to a dispensary in Colorado. They didn't have any ugly-looking pot. It was all candy bars and stuff. I, what are other states doing? Do they have anything that people can bring into their house that they can eat that isn't going to make their kids think, oh, yum, I, I've got to try that? Have you seen anything? Well, you know, cannabis can be in regular food. Um, mm -hmm. I have a client, for example, who was in Los Angeles for many years in this industry, and she uh, made meals. You know, she had pasta sauce and different things, and she would home deliver it. She had a labeling that had the amount of dosage, calories, you know, a whole food labeling thing. And she pretty much became known as the Meals on Wheels of Cannabis. The majority <laughs> of her clients were seniors. And so there could be all sorts of food that includes cannabis that isn't sweet or dessert or a treat, but good, healthy food. Make it with the butter. Uh, we have a caller. Yo is on the line. Welcome to the program, Yo. Good evening. This may be dating me, but uh, when I was a child, we had candy cigarettes and candy booze. Mm -hmm. And I had to struggle to overcome problems with both of those substances. And over those years, I've come to realize that the only reason to prohibit cannabis is for business. And the only reason to regulate cannabis today is for business. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thanks for calling, Yo. And again, the phone number, if you'd like to join the conversation, is 469-0500. 
469-0500 is the local number and one 625-9378 is the toll-free number. We've got Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier with us. We're talking about the new and probably about to be at least slightly revised recreational marijuana law here in Maine. Paul, did you want to say well, something I else? Think, I, mean, I just think it's interesting when we talk about the reasons we need to, to regulate cannabis. And it'd be nice if we lived in a world where every human being was responsible enough and um, had enough consciousness um, to not need regulations, but unfortunately that's not the world we live in. And I think we also need to remember that not everyone's comfortable with the idea of cannabis being legal, um, taxed, and tracked. And so the idea of regulations is to help put some of those people's fears to bed. Because we got to realize that some of those people, you know, they're our neighbors, they're part of our community, they're people we may know. And so at some point you kind of have to come to the middle when it comes down to um, legalizing cannabis. And I think that's what question one did. Yeah, we didn't really talk about this on any of the shows that we did on Maine Currents leading up to the election. Uh, The arguments that some people have that are just against marijuana entirely, just kind of figuring that the more interesting part for our listeners was probably the fact that so many people who were supported marijuana, legal marijuana, were against question one and where those points of disagreement were. But left out of that are the people who say that pot is a gateway drug for other things. As you uh, talk to people, and I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people on both sides of this issue as it uh, as the months went on, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, is there any any validity to that? Others are saying that it can be used as a substitute to help people get off opioids. So where is the science in that? The, um, the gateway drug, um, well... There may be some basis in reality of using that phrase. Causality is very interesting. The reason, at least from what I've read um, in terms of studies, is if there's any basis for calling cannabis a gateway drug, it's the fact that people are buying it from drug dealers who are... um, what works for them is to ramp up people's drug usage. Um, and we'll now have a system where um, young people will be ID'd um, and they will no longer be falling prey to drug dealers that are all from the most upscale community in Maine to the most rural community in Maine. They're all over the place. And um, if if people are, you know, ramping up drug use, it can be laid at the feet of drug dealers. I mean, I, I don't believe in the gateway theory at all. I agree with Lynn that the, you know, the gateway theory only applies to people being able to get um, other drugs um, because they're buying a marijuana illicitly. But on the same token, there, there's it's the power of the personal experience and the, it's the power of the, the, the anecdotal evidence. Um, so I don't think, you know, as much as I disagree with it, we can't discount people's personal stories where they say, well, my brother Jimmy started smoking pot. The next thing you know, he was smoking crack. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's we can't discount those personal experiences just because, um, you know, that's, I think, you know, not a way to get through to people. You know, we have to acknowledge the fact that if someone, if, if that's someone's, you know, stalwart belief, you can present them with piles of evidence and they won't, they, they, they will say the evidence is skewed or they won't believe it, much like how people say, oh, well, we are living in a post-truth era for a lot of people. Well, it's, you know, it's the idea that if, the new thing is it's it's fake news if I don't agree with it. Yeah. Um, 
So well, I think Yossarian, who called in a few minutes ago, called in a previous show and said something along the lines of, um, I drank milk before I drank alcohol, so therefore milk is a gateway drug. So yeah, the, the sequence of things doesn't necessarily really imply that the one thing caused the other thing. But uh, going back to edibles for a little bit, are, are there sense medical marijuana has been legal here in Maine for years now and the dispensaries and the caregivers are making edibles of various kinds. Have there been increased reports of kids getting into, I was not able to find anything in looking for this uh, within the state, increased reports of either kids getting into the edibles. Um, Maine, you know, from from my, from my discussions with the Maine Department of Health and Human Services, and I, I think it's the Maine Poison Control Hotline, there, there was not some, some spike or increase in the number of, of people, period, um, potentially taking too much of a marijuana edible or using too much marijuana and having um, some sort of side effects. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because you, you'd think that that would be a cause, um, you know, now that ma marijuana was be able to be, you know, medically legal, but it's not. So if, you know... If we're basing it off that statistic, we haven't seen this spike in people um, using too much marijuana or minors being get, able to get access to marijuana. So, I mean, that would be kind of an indication, I would think, of how what direction things might be heading in. Another issue that gets raised a lot, especially by law enforcement, is impaired driving and how to measure that. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, there, um, there is... A the problem is um, the comparison with um, drunk driving. There is a socially and legally um, based consensus on 0.08 being an indicator of impairment. Uh, for some people it may be, uh, for some people it may not be, for some people um, 0.04 could be impairment. People's physical conditions, metabolism, etc., all differ. But as a society, we've come to that consensus. And um, scientifically, the breathalyzer test um, correlates with that consensus. There's no such consensus for impaired driving in terms of uh, a person who used cannabis. So the, at least now, and Paul can maybe talk a bit more about this, um, all that's available are on-the-ground officers who are trained to identify uh, impairment and then take, the, take it from there. And so the idea of taking it from there is if, you know, if a law enforcement officer believes you're impaired um, on drugs, you know, they give you a breathalyzer and you don't, um, you don't blow for any sort of um, alcohol, on your breath, then they would um, have a drug, recogn drug recognition expert, a DRE, come in to determine if you were impaired under any sort of drug. From what we've seen from that, the DRE is recognized by the courts as being the, the authority on whether someone is impaired or not. And law enforcement is a very difficult law enforcement training class. And that's one thing that we've been looking to do possibly with some of the tax revenue is having more training for drug recognition experts or more... Um, like um, merit pay or experience pay for law enforcement that are that are drug recognition experts to be able to make sure someone is impaired driving down the roads. Um, I think it's important to note, though, is that it, it should be any substance that you're impaired on. You know, as, as ridiculous as it may sound, some of the people calling for a THC-based OUI, um, you know, if we're talking about like a nanogram um, per milliliter of blood, 
you know, be careful what you wish for, because next thing you know, someone will be saying, well, there needs to be a, a caffeine limit. How many nanograms of caffeine can you have in your system before you're determined to be under the influence of caffeine and impaired? Maybe um, a testosterone limit. That, I mean, there, there, definitely, there, could be, there could be that too. Uh, you know, and so we, we look at this, and you know, I think when we talk about edibles and like the safety of people being able to consume cannabis, I could go to any convenience store and buy 15 energy drinks of the large can energy drinks, and I could sit there and drink them one after another and after another, and I could get behind the wheel. Now, would that cause me to have some sort of medical episode? Would that cause me to not be able to drive my vehicle? That's something that you know is, it, we don't we don't know, but if it did. I couldn't. I could be charged for driving op, for operating under the influence or being impaired while driving, but there's still not a per se limit for what the amount of caffeine I can have in my bloodstream. So none of the states who've legalized this have been able to come up with any kind of general consensus about how to test for in, at levels of impairment uh, because they're looking for some kind of medical test in in the indication of THC or the other tests that they do in the bloodstream don't necessarily indicate that one person is impaired at a particular level versus somebody else or even how long ago they consumed it. From 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 everything I've read, the, the states out west have looked at five um five nanograms per milliliter of blood. When people have brought that to court before a jury trial, before a judge, um, they've won every single time. Because there there is no science to back up that that is a level of impairment for a 98 pound person or a 298 pound person. So there's there's no science to back that up. And once it gets before a court, it's been dismissed every single time. The uh, the difficulty I think we encounter is that some people can't afford to be able to bring it that far or feel intimidated by the legal system, so they tend to take a plea deal. What if the measure of driving impaired was just that you were driving like you were impaired? I mean, or, or some kind of, I, I heard, and Lynn, you might know this as an attorney, that field sobriety tests aren't done anymore, like the thing where you walk the line and stuff. I, do you know anything about that? I mean, that seems like a in, better indicator of whether somebody was on something, even if it was something prescribed for them. Uh, they, it's not like they're not allowed anymore. They Certainly law enforcement can do them. But um, there seems to be a reluctance or for whatever reason on the part of law enforcement to not do them. They think they're too subjective maybe? They may think they're too subjective, but they used to be um, the basis for bringing someone in to do a – you know, a test. And now it may be that law enforcement just figure they don't need to bother even with them. But if we're going to talk about um, impairment, then we, I think the idea of field sobriety tests for any person, a person can be, particularly if we're looking perhaps at commercial drivers, can be tired and be impaired. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many, it doesn't even have to be a physiological reason in terms of substances to make someone impaired. And over the last few years, we've had some horrific accidents with truck drivers uh, who were who were overtired. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I've never had a problem, and I used to do a lot of criminal law, now I don't. I've never had a problem with law enforcement using field sobriety tests as the basis for further investigation. Again, if you're just joining us, this is Maine Currents on WERU. We're talking about the new uh, law legalizing recreational marijuana in Maine with two of the people who helped pass it, Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier. And we invite you to join the conversation with your questions or comments at 469-0500. 
locally. Again, it's 469-0500, or you can call toll-free at 1-866-625-9378. And if you want to give us a false name in town, if you want to remain anonymous, we're completely fine with that. Nobody's going to check out and make sure you really are who you say you are, except for this person, because we all know your voice. Yo, welcome back. Hello. If I may, I'd like to chime in on the subject of impairment. Absolutely. It's actually been some time since I had an officer tell me that when they see somebody driving exactly at the limit, that they presume that person is high on pot. And more recently, <laughs> I've been hearing stories that when somebody blows zero, 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 that instead they take them down to a clinic to take their blood. So I guess what that means is if you don't want to get busted driving, have a drink and drive over the limit. <laughs> Thanks again I, 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 for putting on this program. Thanks, Joe. You know, I haven't heard of I haven't heard of a of a blood test here in the state of Maine for something as just just impaired driving. I know that you know during fa any sort of fatal accident accident mandates a blood test, but mm -hmm. from my recollection of the hearings last year concerning the marijuana OUI bill, is that they don't test for fatal during fatal accidents. They don't test for if there's THC in the blood. Hmm. They, and they don't test if there's amphetamines or opiates. It's just for alcohol. Well, in doing some research for this show today, I came across a lot of headlines. Like I mentioned that one earlier, sharp increase in marijuana exposure among Colorado children, that if you read beyond the headline, I don't know that that headline was actually justified. And then the science, obviously, uh, is something that you need to look at and you need to follow the links to the actual original reports. One of them uh, that's mentioned a lot is this AAA study that was done in May of this year. Uh, this you probably saw in headlines and other newspapers called something else, but if you went back to find the original study, uh, it's called Prevalence of Marijuana Involvement in Fatal Crashes, Washington, 2010 to 2014. And when it's cited in other places, it's uh, used to talk about the sharp increase in uh, after the legalization passed in Washington state of uh, accidents in which people were found to have THC in their blood. But if you read through the study, it's not really clear that they were even checking for it before the law passed. After the law passed, they weren't checking everybody and they weren't checking a random sample of people. They were, in, uh, in fact, they, it says on page 14 of this, research on the relationship between THC presence and risk of crash involvement has been inconclusive. Uh, there are other things about this criticizing their own study, which a good study does. It explains its limitations. Um, but we'll get into that in a moment if we have time because we want to take a call from Mike from Swanville. Welcome to Maine Currents, Mike. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, nice to speak with you again. I, I really think that the uh, field sobriety test is where it's at for determining whether somebody or not is too impaired to drive. I don't, and like your uh, guest said, she's never seen any problem in the courts with that. Um, and in the days where we have dash cams and body cams, why, if they have you do the field sobriety in front of the camera, they'll have plenty of evidence that you're snookered, you know, if you are. Uh, I, I think that they're trying to develop some sort of uh, drug test as a gotcha, you know, just like the breathalyzer is kind of actually a gotcha because, you know, it's, it's arguable whether blowing point zero eight or whatever really is impaired. But, you know, it's an administrative gotcha and a revenueing uh, ticket, so... I think that's why they're eager to develop such things and that any intent towards, you know, being concerned about the, the safety of people could be dismissed with the field sobriety test. So, so 
right, would right. like to poke through their silly illusions. Right, because somebody who is maybe drinking for the first time and has a lower level of alcohol in their blood may be a lot more impaired than somebody who has a higher tolerance for it as well. So it seems like it's a this is an attempt to come up with a standardized something that they can claim is completely objective, what, whereas a field sobriety test would be more subjective. And I don't know what they would check for, you know, walking the I don't know what's line. more objective. I don't know what's more objective than a field sobriety test. Right, right. Well, what would you te- what would you test for? I mean, they with the alcohol, it's like close your eyes and touch your nose or walk the line. Or I mean, I mean, I've only seen these on TV. What do they really do? Oh, and there's write the I, alphabet. Write it down. I, I, I think that they've already they already have a bunch of standard practices that are designed to elicit whether or not you uh, are too impaired to drive whatever you're on, whether it's barbiturates or alcohol or pot or right. you know cough syrup. Right. Um. But but the uh, I I think I mean in the realm of science they could probably actually devise a device that you look into, and it like uh, strobes your eyes with light and then tests the speed at which you know, with the lasers test the speed at which your eyes respond. Frankly, I think they could probably scientifically come up with that to figure out whether you're impaired. But you know mm-hmm. again, uh, you you know that a lot of these states like I've heard like Georgia and other states have a swab where they swab you and if if the swab turns pink it means you have marijuana DNA on your hand. From and um, that means you're going. I mean from 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 what I from what I've read is that the the mouth swab is to determine if you've used marijuana I think within the last two to four hours. You know again that doesn't show you know any sort of sort of impairment it just says do you have marijuana on your breath and that can only detect marijuana that's actually been smoked. Oh, that's gonna, you know, not, gonna not, ask. not like a, not like an edible or a tincture. And if you smoked four hours earlier, you're probably not high anymore unless you smoked a lot. You know you know again it's it's subjective. Um, you know it, from my work with the Secretary of State's office on their um, marijuana and driving working group, the the biggest danger we saw from the data is actually the combination of marijuana and alcohol, um, which leads to an yeah, impairment. Yeah, that's, stu- that's called being stunk. <laughs> <laughs> stunk like a skunk. Stunk driving. Do not do it. Well, thank you for Don't your call. Do that. Thanks for your call, Mike. Uh, again, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU, and we are on until 5 o'clock. So we've got like 15 minutes or so left if you have any questions or comments. And like I said earlier, if you don't want to ask them under your real name, you're welcome to give us a pseudonym. No one's going to check. The number is 469 if you're calling locally, 469 or toll-free 1-866-625-9378. I'd really love to hear if there's anybody out there who has just been waiting for it to become legal so they can start smoking it either for the first time or for the first time after a while. did I, I really wonder how much legalization, I mean, it's going to make a difference, obviously, in people not getting in trouble for it, but whether or not it actually increases usage, I, I'd be interested to hear. I, you know, anecdotally, because um, we've had a lot of anecdotal you know, discussions on you know, this program so far, is there's a lot of people who are in the professional class or who are, um, you know, classic like white-collar jobs or in the medical field who are excited to be able to use cannabis without having to face any sort of professional penalty. Um, you know, they, they use cannabis currently, but it's always having to watch out, and you, they can't be open around some coworkers. They can be open around others um, about their cannabis usage. And I think this goes, you know, um, you know, even to um, some sort of uh, some of the branches of finance, um, some people who work in state government, um, you know, all across the board of people where we're trying to really break down the stigma of responsible cannabis use. Which also raises a question, which hopefully we'll have a chance to get to after we take this call, of whether or not employers can and should and will still test their employees for it. Uh, Wade from Lincolnville, welcome to Maine Currents. Hey, thank you. 
um, I was driving, listening, and just pulled into the house, so I grabbed the phone real quick. Um, I want to touch base back on the kind of the edibles and the problems with the candy-looking kind of stuff that mm -hmm. they have out there and the containers. Um, we've had discussions about this a number of times, and, you know, they're not, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. When I was younger, family and friends were prescribed all kinds of other different kinds of barbiturates and stuff that were all red and striped and colorful, and they all looked fun to us as little kids. God, if something would have happened back then, that would have been crazy. So we're looking at the same thing. We have the containers, and we have the responsible people out there. And it makes me crazy that this is an issue. Right. So easy. To, to avoid the problem, you mean? Right. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, you know, some parents, um, some responsible parenting might be nice. Um, but that's, I guess that would be on another show. <laughs> well, what, um, I've, what I've said recently at a few presentations I've done, I grew up in the 50s and early 60s. I was a kid. And no one I knew got into the Drano, which was under the kitchen sink for anyone to get at. And there was also the rat poison under the kitchen sink. Um, and I think a recognition that this is not something you want your child to have access to uh, is a good start. I did eat an entire bottle of baby aspirin when I was a kid. I will admit that, <laughs> but I'm still here to tell about it. So, But, yes, good point, Wade. Thank you for your call. Thanks very much. Great show. Thank you. And, uh, Paul, did you want to Well, I mean, I think, I think Wade hit on a really good point is, you know, when we're talking about the policy and, like, you know, the kind of social contract we live under, um, when are we going to let adults start being adults again and adults taking responsibility for, for their actions and for those in their care, whether they're um, someone who you know, isn't able to take care of themselves or, or, or a minor, you know, within the, um, you know, within the person's family or under the person's care? You know, we have to we ha we have we have to come back to the fact that we're we're responsible. We should be responsible adults, and we shouldn't have to give up our freedoms just because there's a, a, a minuscule percentage of the population that isn't able to be a responsible adult. Mm -hmm. Jim from Pittsfield, welcome to Maine Currents. Thank you. Uh, first, thank you for the the uh, the individuals involved in in getting this legislation passed. I am very grateful for your efforts. Um, I two. One comment you asked if there are people who are going to uh, start smoking who haven't, not necessarily smoking, smoking, but using THC. I certainly will be one of those. I haven't uh, used THC for decades. I am a senior citizen and I'm looking forward to being able to do it legally because in my professional life I didn't feel it was worth the risk. Mm. And now that uh, I can do it legally, I probably will maybe do it once a year, but it'll be nice. Well, that's thanks for calling and answering that um, that call that I put out to people. Jim, do you have any concerns about, does your employer do any kind of mandatory testing or anything? Well, I'm now retired, so it's a moot oh, okay. point. But when I was uh, working, no. We, we didn't have any mandatory testing, but it just... Uh, but if uh, you got caught, well, if, it, obviously it would, would have been take a problem. My, take my license away possibly and take away my living so it wasn't worth uh, any kind of hassle to me right. I wasn't worth I wasn't willing to take a risk you know if you have any questions about uh, one of the things we wanted to make sure we touched on before we wrapped up here today were was advice for people who are going to start using now because 
the strains have gotten a lot stronger over the years. Uh, there's a, they're a lot more potent. Uh, do you have any questions about that, or should we just go to general kinds of information about that? Uh, no, I don't have any specific uh, questions or concerns. I okay. figure I can deal with this when the time comes. It's not something I'm going to jump right into. Yeah. But I didn't. I, I missed part of the, the conversation, and I was wondering, did, did you discuss the 10% tax. I know that other states have a much, much higher tax. And I wonder if this is possibly going to be changed. Paul? So, yeah, there, there, have, been members of the le- there have been members of the legislature who've discussed um, raising the tax rate, um, you know, and I can understand that they want to raise it because they've seen these other states out west having uh, a higher tax rate. We don't think that the tax rate needs to be higher than 10% initially. We all, we all know, for those of us who live in Maine, that there's a vibrant underground marijuana market here. And if we're going to be expecting people who are living under a regulated system of tracking, testing, and taxing cannabis, that they should have um, to, as, as, equal, as equal of a playing field as possible with the underground market. And that 10% sales tax um, is what we believe will do that. This is the idea of the path of least resistance. The person is going to be willing to pay 10% more for the convenience of being able to go to a um, regulated store. Okay. I, I appreciate that thought. I was sort of thinking along the lines of what, if – uh, marijuana is certainly going to be popular. I have no doubt about that. And it will raise a whole lot of money for the state. And when it does, it's just going to make it really impossible for the legislature to ever even think about going back. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your call. Appreciate your uh, calling in, Jim. Mm-hmm. Bye now. Bye. Again, numbers 469-0500 if you have any questions or comments. You know, there are other industries, too, that in Colorado there were all these little boutiques in Denver. I was there for a conference over the summer, and I don't know if this was by accident, but even if it was, I'm sure they made out. There was the one that was closest to where the conference center was had a gourmet popcorn shop on one side of it and a, and a uh, cupcake place on the other side of it. So I'm sure there are other little businesses that spring up, you know, kind of like the Girl Scouts that everybody hears about who sold cookies outside the dispensary. Um, but advice for before we finish up and, and forget to get to it, what advice do you have for people who are just starting out or getting back to it after a long time of not having used and coming into um, these sort of really strong, potent strains um, it's t- it's take it slow, take it very slow. If you're if you're going to be um, smoking it, um, don't take like more than one or two hits before you know within the first hour. If you're using an edible, I wouldn't suggest you know eating more than um, you know five um, five milligrams um, within you know an hour and a half to two hours. Just just so you can set a baseline for yourself. So how is it going to affect you? Because the 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 most common. The most common side effect for some, you know, for somebody who's new, um, for taking too much cannabis tends to be anxiety, and that we don't want to scare anyone away from the use of uh, responsible cannabis. Yeah, and don't forget, um, particularly those of us of an age of aches and pains, don't forget the cannabis body products that are available. They've been available, and they've been, you know, you're at le- less risk even before legalization of using them, but. This is not Bengay. These are wonderful products, and they really, really do work. And the edibles take a while to kick in, so so hold off and wait and, and uh, give yourself an hour before you see how high you are. Uh, we have another call from an anonymous uh, caller. Welcome to the main Currents, Anonymous. Hi there. Um, yeah, I'm a resident of Massachusetts, visiting in Maine, and been driving up to my destination to listen to your show. Um, when you, uh, which has been interesting, uh, when you talked about um, uh, things to 
with people who haven't smoked for a while, um, I can comment on a couple of things. I think I just heard the other caller before me say, be careful of the edibles. Um, I've smoked uh, weed uh, since 1966. Uh, and off and on, sometimes, I'll, you know, when in college then, and then off for years and on for little and on and off, okay? So, but I'm thrilled that it's legalized, even though I have had some reservations about voting for it in Massachusetts, but decided that I uh, would be a uh, hypocrite if I didn't. Um, and I had some experience there. Um, I had some experience with edibles in California recently, um, and I say that um, you got to be really careful of the edibles. Um, something I'm aware of now that I never was in for decades. Of people would say, "Oh, this is this is a uh, good stuff or strong stuff or weak stuff or whatever," but now you can pay attention to the labeling of. Uh, how many milligrams and how strong it is. And if you, um, I haven't had, um, I've had, you know, five milligrams, great, just happy. Uh, more than that, I would not drive a car. I wouldn't drive a car anyway. Um, I, I, I did when I was younger. I would never do that again. Um, and But you, ha- you have to wait for like a couple hours even, more than an hour for it to kick in. And don't make the mistake of having more. Having eating something and then having more because there's no reaction because you can get in trouble. And um, you also just have to be really careful of the milligrams. I had an experience not that long ago where I ate half of a 15-milligram cookie, and uh, uh, two hours later I could hardly walk across the room for not a long time, but still, you know, it's not, so it can be a little scary. So just be careful um, and uh, take it easy. Great. Thank you for calling. That's good advice. And, you know, one of the terms that weren't tossed around back in the day, you know, you know I've heard Cheech and Tong talking about indigo versus sativa. Uh, can either of you let people know what those are and how they might affect people? So the, um, so the sativa is more associated with like the THC, and it's more or less like, like the head high. Um, and this is really kind of, you know, just kind of layman's terms. And then the, the indica is more associated with like generally the CBD, and it's more of like the body, um, the body high. And so there's a, there's a whole can, uh, there's a whole spectrum of cannabinoids um, within within the cannabis plant that um, we're just starting to discover. So you know there's there's indica strains that might have more CBV, which is really helpful with sleep, um, and then there's um, sativa strains that might have more CBN, which is helpful with um, inflammation. So there's we're really just starting to discover the benefit the full benefits of this plant. There's a lot more science to it now. It seems like you can talk to your caregiver or presumably whoever you're going to buy from, especially the retail places, I think, too, have everything labeled accordingly. And they're labeled accordingly, and it's, you know, it's just really up to the establishment to really be educated about what, about, about what strain does what and like what benefits each strain has. Um, you know, I know that a lot of Lynn's clients have, uh, you know, spent a lot of time and energy into looking into um, you know, what strains are best for certain ailments. Are there good resources out there that people can look into? Well, there are, in terms of published resources, um, not that I know of. Um, and But I do want to comment on, um, on this issue, particularly with respect to the medical program. Um, at least those people who are patients or who are interested in becoming patients, their caregivers are their best resor- 
resource. And when people have said to me, well, we're not going to have the medical program anymore, I give two examples of caregivers who are clients of mine. One is a woman who only takes as patients menopausal women. (laughs) God bless her. The other are two veterans who both have service-related injuries, and they, they only take as patients veterans. And they bond, they have things in common. These patients are never going to leave these caregivers, and these caregivers are never going to lose their business because of this. And so that's the, the great part of the main medical program, um, these resources that are available. How about resources for people who want to start growing their own? I mean, is it as simple as getting some seeds and throwing them in a pot and starting some seedlings in the spring, or I mean, what's involved in that? Well, I mean, it can it can be as simple or as complicated as you want to make it. Um, there are a lot of resources, um, both online and in print, um, about um, cultivation and about cultivating, um, you know, cannabis and specific strains, about what specific strains like. Um, and there's also going to be a great ancillary service. You know, I know um, some people who are already starting, um, in, in, in essence, uh, like vocational schools or landscaping options for people who want to grow their own and be able to walk them through the process of being able to cultivate their own. Hmm. All right. Do either of you uh, have contact information where people can get in touch with you if they have questions? Yes, um, Lynn Williams, and my email is lwilliams, with an S, law, no spaces there, at earthlink.net. And um, you can check out Legalize Maine's website, www.legalizemaine.net, or email us at legalizemaine at gmail.com. Okay, we have just a couple minutes left. I wanted to give you each a minute or so to uh, share any final thoughts, any things we hadn't covered that you think is important for people to know. Um, Just one quick thing, which is in the forefront of my mind, because I am also a land use attorney, and... um, I'm, I'm noticing, as probably people who are following it in the paper are noticing, um, towns, are, towns are moving forward in many cases with moratorium. And um, people shouldn't be freaked about this. That's just a time out to allow the time uh, to the, for the town to determine how they're going to regulate this. But if you are someone in a town that uh, in which you want to create a cannabis business, it behooves you to talk to your town, uh, go to these meetings, speak up, uh, be clear with them. This is not hidden. You're a business or a a potential business. Be clear with them uh, what your intentions are and see if that's the right place for you. Paul? I mean, I think the thing is, is that um, you know everybody who is supportive of Question One and supportive of individuals' uh, civil rights to be able to possess and cultivate cannabis, really make sure you contact your legislature or your legislators, um, your representative and your senator, and, and express how you want to see this law enacted as written, and you want to make sure that people are going to be able to access cannabis legally and that these retail um, stores and um, commercial um, cultivation and um, manufacturing will be able to get up and running as soon as possible. And also feel free to reach out, reach out to the governor's office. Um, I know sometimes he does respond to public pressure. Um, other times he doesn't, but it doesn't hurt to make a phone call. All right. Well, a lot to watch with this as some of the bugs get worked out as it moves through the legislature as they reconvene. Thank you for being with me today, Lynn Williams and Paul Thank McCarrier. You. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU every Wednesday at 4 o'clock. I'm Amy Brown. 
John Greenman was our engineer today. Keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! Coming up next, followed by Jazz Straight Ahead here on your community radio station made possible with your support. I think we still have about $12,000 left to go before the end of the year. John's nodding yes. He has a sign in there. So if you can help out, if you appreciate independent media, call 469-6600 during business hours or go online at weru.org. And keep it tuned here to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. And join me here again next week, Wednesday at 4 for Main Currents. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org.